This podcast contains coarse language, dark humor, descriptions of violence, and opinions that will probably piss you off. Listener discretion is advised. Like almost every other state back east, Delaware is one that doesn't cross my mind. Sometimes I forget it's even part of this great nation. The Founding Fathers are probably rolling over in their graves hearing me say that. Delaware was the first state to ratify the Constitution, earning them the very fitting nickname, the First State. Apparently in colonial times, cockfighting was so popular here that soldiers would bring their own blue hens, which earned Delaware another nickname, the Blue Hen State. Their history as far as capital punishment goes is much like the rest of the eastern part of the U.S. Murder wasn't the only thing that could earn someone the death penalty. Rape, attempted murder, and even housebreaking could land someone a quick drop and a sudden stop. Delaware's first executed person was a male slave by the name of Turk, executed by hanging on October 19, 1662 for attempted murder. The majority of executions up to the year 1946 were for murder, but I was shocked to see how many of them were for rape. Hanging was the primary method of execution until 1982 when lethal injection was introduced. In fact, the last person to be executed by hanging in the U.S. was a Delaware man who I will tell you about later on in this episode. The year 2012 saw Delaware's first death penalty clemency, and just four years later the Supreme Court would strike down the death penalty statute and leave the state with no legal way to impose death sentences. Last meals don't discriminate based on sex, age, or race. That should be pretty clear by now. We're an equal opportunity podcast and believe that all condemned should be posthumously shamed for their crimes. Adultery is a crime that, in the U.S., has only been the reason for one execution. Believe it or not, there are still a handful of states where adultery is illegal. Oklahoma, Michigan, and Wisconsin consider it a felony while 13 others say it's a misdemeanor. To my surprise, Utah is not among those. Then again, we were cool with polygamy for a long time. If you go far south enough, you'll still find polygamous colonies. The first case I'm going to tell you about dates all the way back to 1731. Catherine Bevan was a 50-year-old wife living in Newcastle County, Delaware with her husband, Henry. Due to the time period, it's pretty likely that Catherine was a bored housewife, trapped in a marriage she didn't want, maybe. It happens. Back then, people didn't take the time to sleep with their partners, move in with them, and figure out if they were compatible before tying the knot. They had it all wrong, I'm telling you. On April 3rd, 1731, Henry Bevan died suddenly. His neighbors were immediately suspicious of Catherine, who had been too close with their servant, Peter Murphy. According to the neighbors, Henry himself had remarked that Catherine and Peter were abusive toward him. Because of the rumors going around, a county magistrate had decided to attend the funeral. He was very surprised to see that the coffin had been nailed shut before anyone could have a look at the body. He ordered that the coffin be pried open and was then able to see just how brutalized Henry's body appeared. Catherine had claimed Henry died during a fit, whatever the hell that means. Maybe he had ghosts in his blood and needed to do cocaine about it? But after an autopsy, it was determined that he had met his end through violent means. 
Catherine Bevan and Peter Murphy were immediately arrested on suspicion of murder. Both protested their innocence until they were separated. Peter Murphy couldn't keep it together without Catherine by his side. Peter confessed, claiming that his mistress had sent him to Newcastle to buy some rat's bane, or if he could not get that, some Roman vitriol. The vitriol was mixed with a glass of wine and given to Henry, but he puked it up almost immediately. I can imagine there was probably a strong odor or taste. It's not likely that 1700s chemicals were very easy to hide, even in wine. Fearing that poisoning wouldn't have the desired effect, the lovers took a more direct approach. Peter said that Catherine forced him to beat his master well, especially about the breast, till he should grow so weak that she might be able to deal with him and leave the rest to her. Peter beat him until the old man could no longer stand. Henry was moved to the couch where Catherine continued the attack. She twisted a handkerchief around his neck to strangle him. At this point, Peter went to the neighbor's house, who lived at a distance, in order to tell them that Henry was in a fit and she feared he would die in it and desired them to come to the house immediately. Peter arrived back at the Bevan house before the neighbors did and found Henry already deceased. Catherine told him, I have had two hard struggles with the old man since he went away, and he liked to have been too strong for me both times, but I have quieted him at last. This was Peter's story, but Catherine denied all of it. At trial, Peter repeated this tale, and the court believed him. He and Catherine were both found guilty of Henry's murder. The sentence? Well, back in this era, things were done a little differently. Women were not treated equally to men. Peter was to be hanged, while Catherine was to be strangled and burned at the stake. Burning was the penalty for killing your husband back then. I mean, it's fitting, but Jesus. After the sentence was passed down, Peter went back on his story and claimed that Catherine had no part in it. Before the scheduled execution, he claimed that he had wronged her much. Gotta love old English. He said that all the evidence he had given at trial was false and that he was the sole perpetrator of this crime. His efforts to save his lover were pointless. Peter Murphy was executed by hanging on July 10, 1731. He appeared remorseful in the end, and his execution was swift. Catherine Bevan was executed by strangulation and burning at the stake on July 10, 1731. Executions carried out in this manner were designed to minimize the suffering of the condemned by pulling the rope tight right as the fire was lit. In Catherine's case, the fire shot up and immediately burned the rope. She fell into the flames and burned alive in agony for longer than anyone intended. Maybe that was colonial-era God's way of giving her what she deserved. There is no information available on their last words or last meals. The next one I'm going to bring you is also from Newcastle County, but it took place 260 years after Catherine and Henry were put to death. On April 3rd, 1992, Robert Jackson III and Anthony Lachette needed to make some money to buy drugs. This shit again. Seriously. It's called a job, and if you manage to land a good one, you'll be able to afford your fix with no issue. Take it from someone who knows. Their idea of a job was to burglarize a house. 
And no, this wasn't for something truly addicted like meth or coke. They wanted to smoke some weed. Is 90s dirt weed really worth all this hassle? Looking at the facts of the case in front of me, I can tell you that no, it was not. Several lives lost over the need for weed. The target house was that of 47-year-old Elizabeth Girardi, who was the mother of one of Lachette's acquaintances. The men entered into the house through the back door and found that no one was home. They ransacked the house and managed to grab quite a few valuable items, including jewelry, rare coins, and a camera. After the items were put into paper bags, the pair left the house the same way that they came. It was at this point they encountered Elizabeth. She was approaching Jackson's car, which he had stupidly decided to park in the driveway. Lachette decided to flee, despite Jackson trying to convince him to stay. He dropped his bag of stolen goods, too. All that work for nothing. After this, Jackson grabbed an axe from behind a shed and confronted Elizabeth in the driveway. He struck her in the face several times with it, killing her. This poor woman. She was in the wrong place at the wrong time. It's strange to think that had she hit a red light or maybe stopped to buy a drink, she never would have encountered this monster in her driveway. A few seconds could have saved her life. Anthony Lachette pled guilty to second-degree burglary and conspiracy. He agreed to testify against Jackson as well. He was given five years in prison and was released in 1996. That may seem like a light sentence considering what happened to Elizabeth, but keep in mind, Lachette had no part in that murder. He ran off, even left his loot behind. I think what he got was fair. Robert Jackson was found guilty of murder and sentenced to death in April of 1993. Delaware's High Court later found that the sentencing hearing was flawed and it was ordered that he be resentenced. In September of the same year, a second jury found that Jackson was deserving of the death penalty. The jury voted 11 to 1 to put him down. I can't help but wonder how much of Lachette's testimony helped bring an end to Robert Jackson. He had claimed Jackson told him that he didn't feel any remorse and that something was wrong with him. Lachette said that Jackson seemed to get off on the murder. Striking someone in the face with an axe simply because they interrupted a burglary, that takes a special kind of fucked up. Jackson's execution was stayed by a federal district court judge, and Elizabeth's son Christopher was not happy. What is taking place is truly a disgrace, he said. When do we take into consideration the victim's rights? He took my mother's life in an extremely brutal fashion. The problem with the system is I don't believe the punishment fits the crime. I lost my mother and she will never know her grandchildren. He also said that the idea that lethal injection is a cruel and unusual punishment is ludicrous. I fully agree. Robert Jackson III was executed by lethal injection on July 29, 2011, after sitting on death row for nearly 20 years. He was 18 at the time of the crime. He threw his entire life away trying to get money for weed. An innocent woman was brutalized and her family was forced to suffer on without her. During the second sentencing hearing, Jackson told the jury that he was a changed man and apologized to Elizabeth's family. Jackson's last words were, Are the Girardis in there? Christopher and Claudia, if you are in there, I've never faulted you for your anger. I would have been mad myself, but I didn't take your mother from you. He then claimed that Anthony Lachette was the actual killer. Tony's laughing his ass off right now because you're about to watch an innocent man die, 
this isn't justice. Changed man, huh? Pretty sure a changed man would own up to his mistakes instead of casting the blame onto someone who ran away before any act of violence was committed. His execution went on as planned with no issues. This was not a botched lethal injection. This one was relatively quick and painless, as it should be. His last meal was a steak, a baked potato, potato skins, corn, and a soda. Billy Bailey was born in January of 1947 to parents who had no idea what actually caused pregnancy. Billy was the 19th of 23 children. How in the fuck? Pretty sure after five or six, your girly bits just fall out. Maybe women were built differently back then. Billy's mother died shortly after he was born and he ended up with a stereotypical evil stepmother. According to records from social workers, his stepmother beat him and called him worthless. That doesn't do a child any favors. At the age of 12, Billy was labeled a seriously disturbed child who needs professional help. Thankfully, he had a few people to turn to when he needed that help. His foster family was very supportive and he was also able to get treatment in institutions. Billy went on to fuck up his life. In June of 1979, he was in prison for forgery. He was in a work release program. It didn't take long for him to escape. He showed up to his foster sister Sue Ann's house in Cheswold, Delaware on June 12th and told her that he was upset and refused to go back to the work release facility. Rather than sit around and wait to be caught, Billy took advantage of his freedom and went out to run errands with Sue Ann's husband, Charles Coker. Billy asked him to stop at a package store where he went in and robbed the clerk at gunpoint. He came out with a pistol in one hand and a bottle in the other. The clerk was unharmed, thankfully. Billy told Charles that the police were on their way and asked to be taken to Lambertson's Corner, about a mile and a half away. Billy entered the farmhouse, which was owned by 80-year-old Gilbert Lambertson and his 73-year-old wife, Clara. He wanted to steal their truck. Being the kind, compassionate man that he was, Billy kindly asked the elderly couple for their keys and drove away into the night, leaving them unharmed. I'm just pulling your leg. He shot him. Gilbert twice in the chest with his pistol, and once in the head with a shotgun he'd found in the house. Clara once in the shoulder with the pistol, once in the abdomen with the shotgun, and once in the neck with the shotgun. These people were no threat to him. They were an elderly couple living out their days on a farm. I'm sure all it would have taken was a few harsh words and they would have let Billy have whatever he wanted. Maybe not though. Men from this time didn't take any shit. Either way, the Lambertsons didn't deserve to meet their end this way. Before leaving the scene, he set their bodies in chairs for some reason. And while running through their field, he was spotted by a police helicopter. Oh, and I can't forget the best part. He shot at the helicopter because that's a good idea. He missed, though, and was later arrested. Billy was convicted on two counts of first-degree murder, robbery, and a few weapons charges. A jury later found that his crimes were outrageously or wantonly vile, horrible, or inhuman, and recommended the death penalty. Billy was asked why he killed the Lambertsons, and his response was, I don't really know. I just know that I feel bad about it. It hurts sometimes when I think about it. 
When I say hurt, I think about the Lambertsons and how much they hate me, and I start to cry, and sometimes I cry myself to sleep at night. He also claimed that he didn't remember the murders because he was drunk and high on Valium when he did it. His words meant nothing to the family members of his victims. In 1986, Delaware changed their primary method of execution to lethal injection. However, Billy was one of three condemned men who had the choice of hanging instead as they had been sentenced before the law changed. Billy decided to go with hanging, telling a visitor, I'm not a dog, I'm not going to let them put me to sleep. At a clemency hearing, he told the Board of Pardons, I feel the law sentenced me to hang and I should hang. I don't want to, but that was the law. Delaware hadn't executed anyone by hanging in 50 years, so they got some advice from a prison in Washington on how to do it. The gallows were built in 1986 for the purpose of hanging Billy. The execution protocol in Delaware was to use a 30-foot hemp rope, three-quarters of an inch in diameter, that's been boiled to ensure that it won't stretch or coil. The structure is first tested with a sandbag of similar weight to the condemned to ensure that the rope won't break. The structure itself was a platform with a roof above it and a trapdoor through which Billy would fall during his final moments. On his last day on earth, Billy was moved from his cell to a caravan near the gallows. He spent his time eating, sleeping, watching TV, and talking with some of the prison staff. His sister Betty also came to visit him. Billy Bailey was executed by hanging on January 25, 1996. After he was led up 23 steps to the gallows, his arms were strapped to his sides and a black hood was placed over his head. They placed the noose over the hood and waited for the all-clear. Billy stood calmly on the trapdoor and was seen squeezing his fist into a ball. At 12.04 a.m., Warden Robert Snyder pulled the lever and released the trapdoor. Billy fell quickly. He was a big dude. One witness said his body looked like a rag doll with the head sharply angled to one side. He was pronounced dead at 12.15 a.m. Saxton Lambertson, a son of the victims, was there to witness the execution. He was asked how he felt and he said that his parents were very innocent people. They were old and small and he was a big brute. He chose to shoot them so he chose to die. The Lambertson's great-grandson, Chris, stated, Just because Billy Bailey wanted their truck, he killed my great-grandparents. Without a doubt, he should die. My thoughts exactly. Billy didn't have any last words. His last meal was a well-done steak, a baked potato with sour cream and butter, buttered rolls, peas, and vanilla ice cream. Billy Bailey was the last person in the U.S. to be executed by hanging. Seems like it's been a while since I covered a really fucked up DV case, so I'll throw one in here for good measure. David Laurie was a 31-year-old unemployed crackhead. Like, legitimately, that's what he was. He had been living in Dover with his wife Michelle, their son Marcus, and their daughters Fawn and Tabitha. Michelle had grown tired of his drug use and unemployment, as any sensible person would. In late July of 1992, the couple got into a heated argument. David threatened to kill Michelle. He was later arrested and charged with terroristic threatening and offensive touching. That's a hell of a charge. I'm pretty sure I've offensively touched a handful of people in my life. Better hope the statute of limitations has run out. I'm kidding. <laughs> 
This is clearly some kind of DV nonsense. I don't know why they didn't just label it as such. David pled guilty to the terroristic threatening charge in family court and was put on probation. He was also ordered to have no contact with Michelle. On the way out of court, Michelle told him she was filing for divorce. Later that same night, August 5th, 1992, David was smoking crack to relax. Now, I've never done crack, but I can make a pretty educated guess that it is not something to be taken to relax. I've watched my share of crackhead videos on YouTube, which I highly recommend if you need a laugh. Ain't nothing relaxing in those videos. The drugs, combined with past statements from family and friends about Michelle being unfaithful, sent David into a rage. In the early hours of August 6th, David went to the house where his estranged wife and daughters were staying. Two other kids from the neighborhood, Charles and Lisa Humbertson, were also at the house that night. Armed with a can of gasoline, David kicked in the back door and went inside. He started pouring gas around the living room where four-year-old Fawn was playing with the neighbor kids. Obviously startled, the kids ran to the bedroom to be with Michelle and two-year-old Tabitha. At this point, David used the lighter to ignite the gasoline. He then went into the bedroom and stabbed Michelle several times with a knife. The room was full of smoke, but he managed to climb over a dresser and break a window. He then put a stepladder near the window and helped get Lisa Humbertson to safety. According to David, he asked Michelle to hand him the other children, but he received no response. I mean, maybe it's because you stabbed her. What the fuck are you expecting? Seeing the thick smoke flooding out of the window, David ran to a neighbor's house and confessed what he had done. The police were called and he was arrested without incident. Michelle, Fawn, Tabitha, and three-year-old Charles Humbertson all perished in the fire. Take a minute and let your boiling blood cool off. Shed a tear or twenty for those poor kids. I'm about to confuse the fuck out of you. David was charged with four counts of first-degree murder, obviously. In Delaware, a person is guilty of first-degree murder if, in the course of a felony, he recklessly causes the death of another person. The jury found him guilty of three counts of first-degree murder. Those numbers don't add up, right? Well, for some fucking reason, which I am struggling to grasp, he was acquitted of intentional first-degree murder in Michelle's death and instead convicted of second-degree murder. Michelle was the only one he stabbed. It could be argued that she was the only one he had any intent to actually harm and the kids were just caught in the crossfire. Maybe the jury was smoking some of his crack because what the actual fuck? David tried to appeal, but thankfully wasn't able to weasel his way out of his conviction. His jury voted 9-3 that the aggravating circumstances in the case outweighed the mitigating circumstances. Keeping the jury's recommendation in mind, the Superior Court judge decided that David would be sentenced to death for the murders of Fawn, Tabitha, and Charles. At least someone in this courtroom has some common sense. David Laurie was executed by lethal injection on April 23, 1999. Protesters staged a rally in front of Legislative Hall in the hours before his death. They later moved to the prison and held a candlelight vigil. I've said it before, and I'm gonna say it again. I do not understand people who completely oppose the death penalty. I want reform. I want it to be used properly. No innocent man should die by the hands of the state. 
but no child murdering crackhead should be left to breathe our oxygen either. This man killed four innocent people. Crack induced rage or not, what he did was deplorable. There is no reason to waste tax dollars feeding and sheltering him. Bullets are cheaper. His last words were, I would like to thank my family and friends for being by my side all the way. I would not have made it this far without my family. His last meal was two bacon cheeseburgers, french fries, and a chocolate milkshake, keeping it classy to the very end. Stereotypes anger a lot of people in this day and age, but they exist for a reason. While I don't think they should be used to negatively judge people, they are great for jokes. The next guy I'm going to tell you about is a walking fucking stereotype. I'm going to make some jokes. Probably get called a racist, but I really don't care. I don't harbor any hate for race groups as a whole. I harbor hate for murderous psychopaths, regardless of their skin color. Poplar, Montana is home to the Fort Peck Indian Reservation. On February 1st, 1954, a little boy named James Allen Red Dog would be born here. He'd grow up on this reservation and later blame the poverty he experienced here for his crimes. As a child, Red Dog wanted to be just like his older half-brother, who would end up in federal prison. In 1973, he and an accomplice robbed a liquor and pizza store on the reservation. The owner was killed and Red Dog was given 15 years in prison. What the fuck, is that it? 15 years for killing someone. Okay. Four years later, in 1977, Red Dog was on furlough from jail to attend a Native American ceremony, because that's apparently a thing. What is this, Canada? Goddamn. For any of you Family Guy fans, I'm getting Canadian Alcatraz vibes for sure. Just be back by bedtime. Red Dog and an accomplice escaped and fled to Los Angeles, where they met some other Native guys in a bar who offered to give them a place to stay for the night. The two men were stabbed to death in their sleep. You'd think that this time he'd get more than a slap on the wrist, right? Red Dog pled guilty to two counts of second-degree murder, but was given a sentence concurrent with armed robbery, because that makes sense. The killing wasn't over, though. While in prison in Illinois, he provided heroin to kill a gang member who had offended other inmates. Because he testified against the other inmates and became a witness in another investigation, John Redcorn was put in the Witness Protection Program and released on parole in 1990. They moved him to Delaware, where he taught Sioux traditions to the Nanticoke people. I have to say, I'm not sure why they'd let this dude out. State witness or not, he was clearly a threat to others. This guy has no regard for human life. That fact would be proven for a fourth time on February 9th, 1991. James Red Dog was a married man, yet still went out on the town prowling for strange. It was the 90s, you see. Everyone was gross in the 90s. Mr. Redcorn and a friend were out drinking at a bowling alley that evening and failed to pick up any women. After his friend left, he drove to the home of a 52-year-old woman named Joanna Stewart. His reasoning was unclear. Then again, he was shit-faced, so that probably had a big role to play in his decision-making. A man named Hugh Pennington answered the door when Red Dog knocked. Hugh was a friend of Red Dog's wife, Bonnie. The intoxicated man forced his way inside and ordered Hugh to give up all his money. 
Shortly after this, he decided that this innocent man wouldn't be walking away with his life. Hugh was stripped down to his underwear and duct taped to a chair in the basement. Before Red Dog went home, he made sure to go down to see Hugh and slit his throat with a hunting knife. For absolutely no fucking reason. The wound was so deep that it nearly decapitated him. At this point, for obvious reasons, he probably assumed he'd get another slap on the wrist, if anything. The courts don't seem to actually care about getting justice for this man's victims. Red Dog wasn't done with his drunken rampage. He would go on to kidnap Joanna, who I'm assuming was Hugh's roommate. I'm having a hard time following the timeline and information as the articles I'm using for research seem like they were written by a drunk guy. I thought they were already in Joanna's house, but conflicting information is telling me that Red Dog drove her back to her house from somewhere. Anyway, after getting to Joanna's house, he forced himself on her. He raped her many times throughout the night before finally succumbing to the alcohol and passing out. She stayed next to him, too terrified to move because she might wake him up. I wish she would have just snuck out of the house. I really do. The following morning, Red Dog woke up and raped her once again sodomized her this time too. He then forced Joanna into her own car and made her drive him to an abandoned farmhouse. Still not satisfied, he raped her again in the farmhouse. What the fuck is up with this guy? When he was finally done, he made Joanna drive him to a friend's house. He was incredibly careless this time and left her in the car while he went in to see his friend. This is when Joanna finally escaped his grasp. What I haven't told you yet is that on the morning of February 10th, Joanna managed to call her boss. The man's wife, Sandra Bray, answered the phone and was informed that Joanna wouldn't be coming to work that day because she had come down with a sudden illness. This seemed very strange to Sandra. Joanna had never missed a day of work. She also realized that Joanna wasn't scheduled to work that day. After getting off the phone, Sandra woke her husband up and told him about the strange call. Sensing that something was off, they decided to drive over to Joanna's house in Wilmington. When they arrived, it was clear that Joanna wasn't home and that her car was missing. Her roommate, Hugh Pennington, also appeared to be missing, but his car was still parked in the driveway. The Brays searched through the house and were horrified when they entered the basement. Hugh's body lay on the floor, surrounded by a pool of blood. Without hesitation, they called 911. As the police were checking out the crime scene, a neighbor came over to see what was going on. The woman would turn out to be a huge help in finding their suspect. She told the cops that she had been watching movies with Joanna the previous night, and that her husband, James Red Dog, had taken Joanna home afterward. This wasn't what caught the officer's attention, though. What really had him intrigued was that Red Dog was a convicted murderer. Remember a few minutes ago when I told you about Joanna's daring escape while Red Dog was at his friend's house? While the cops were looking into Hugh Pennington's crime scene, Joanna showed up and told them a terrifying story of what Red Dog had done to her. A massive search for the fugitive began, and he was apprehended while walking across the Winchester Bridge in Wilmington. He had smeared deer feces on himself to throw off the scent of police dogs. After the police had seen him walking and matched him to the description of the wanted murderer, they pulled him over. He answered honestly when asked what his name was, and thus ended James Red Dog's reign of terror. 
Montana was lenient with Red Dog. California let him go with little more than a slap on the wrist. Delaware, though. Delaware didn't fuck around. Third time's the charm. He was charged with Hugh's murder as well as everything that he had done to Joanna Stewart. He pled no contest to murder, kidnapping, and rape, stating that he was so drunk that he couldn't remember what he had done. He was given 80 years for tormenting Joanna and a death sentence for killing Hugh. I was genuinely surprised to find out that because of Red Dog's crimes, a Delaware senator by the name of Joseph R. Biden Jr. introduced legislation that would require federal officials to notify states when a violent offender was moved to their jurisdiction. I didn't know the man was capable of making a good decision, but here we are. Red Dog asked for the death penalty and wouldn't participate in any appeals. His attorneys ordered psychiatric exams to see whether he was competent enough to make that decision, or just suicidal and crazy. I know they're just doing their job, but goddamn, he wants to die, let him go. Has he not done enough damage? A superior court judge found that Red Dog was competent and ordered that the execution move forward. James Allen Red Dog was executed by lethal injection on March 3, 1993. Because of his Sioux heritage, his last rites were performed by a tribal medicine man. Red Dog's lawyers fought to keep him alive and were even sanctioned for refusing to comply with their client's wishes. Red Dog used his last words to apologize to his family and tell them he loved them before adding, the rest of you can kiss my ass. His last meal was shrimp, crabs, and lobster from a local restaurant near the prison called Bailey's. That was a long one, wasn't it? I wasn't expecting Delaware to be so full of fucked up people. Then again, they gave us Joe Biden. Sorry, I couldn't help it. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed this last meal. If you did, please subscribe and drop a rating or review wherever you found me. I'm available on Rumble as well as most places you can get podcasts. Just a quick side note, if you're hearing any ads, I did not choose to put them there. This is just a side gig for me. I don't really care if it makes me any money. And as an avid listener of podcasts, I despise ads. I will never voluntarily put them in my podcast. Anyway, you can get me on Instagram at LastMealPod if you want to see pictures of the fucked up people I talk about. Curse is the man who dies, but the evil done by him survives. See you next time. <laughs>